You are listening to The Bill Podcast with me, Natalie Rolls, brought to you in association with georgefairbrother.com, shop.saturdaymorningpress.co.uk and cityfiction.co.uk. we are going to dive into the crime fiction world with author, publisher and The Bill Podcast brand new co-sponsor, Tony Drury. Tony is the author behind five DCI Sarah Rudd novels, where in each book he drew upon his experience as a London financier to inspire the DCI's array of suspects as she exposed an underworld of dark practices. His latest book, Square Mile Tales, is a fascinating memoir taking readers on a helter-skelter ride around the City of London where along the way he had memorable encounters with some notable criminals. We'll also be thanking Tony for jumping on board the Bill podcast and asking him how any of you budding writers can submit your work to his publishing company, City Fiction. Tony Jury, welcome to the Bill Podcast. Thank you, Natalie. Thank you, Tony, for being here. You're looking dapper. You've got your nice jacket on. Natalie, would you like today's quiz question? No. <laughs> Which famous singer do you remind me of? Debbie Harry. I wish. <laughs> Petula Clark. Oh. I watched your crowdfunding video this morning. And the first time I saw you, I thought, good heavens, that's Petula Clark. I mean, obviously, I'm a lot older than you, and she was my generation. But she wore her hair just like you. Oh, if only I could sing like her. Well. <laughs> my other career. We can... Oh, you well, you started a career, your writing career later on in life, didn't you? Well, one tries. <laughs> After such a colourful financial political career. I find that fascinating that people start writing things later on in life. What propelled you? A great friend of mine, Simon Petrick, once said to me, everybody's got a book inside them and most people, that's exactly where it should stay. <laughs> we all think we can write. The great writers, the big noises, J.K. Rowling and so on, they make you feel as though you could do what they do, but of course you can't. I've always been writing because I was at training school, Mercantile Credit and Barclays Bank Training School, and that involved a lot of writing. And then I had that offer to write the book on finance houses. So that was my first ever book. And then I wrote the book on investment clubs. The fiction came much later. We had a holiday home in Abu Dhabi, which is in West Wales, in Gwynedd. And there's a legend there, the bells of Abu Dhabi. And the legend is that if you can hear the bells ringing at night, you might find love. Well, I've got to go to Abu Dhabi. No, what, how do you say it? Not Abu Dhabi. <laughs> Abu Dhabi. 
Adder is estuary and Dovey is the river. And uh, in fact, if you don't pronounce it correctly, people used to think we were going to the Middle East for the weekend. But, exactly, uh, <laughs> as just as I poorly said it. And that's where you began to write your first fiction novel. That took two years. And that was where I wrote my first work of fiction, yes. That's pretty quick, actually, two years, because some people just go, yeah, well, that took, you know, six years of my life or two years is pretty good. And, and the way you break down, obviously, with your financing and your dedication of your work ethic to be able to sit down and say, right, today I will write so many words. Well, to be honest, the one thing I've never, ever had a problem with in life is finding time. There is always time there if you really want to do something. 24 hours in a day is actually quite a long time. And if you take eight hours out, you've still got two thirds left. So if you decide you want to do it, there is the time. The, the bigger issue, certainly on your first book, it's, it's a learning curve. For instance, it caused problems in the marriage because I would go in my study for two hours and write a thousand words. And then I'd want Judy to read it, <laughs> which was totally unfair of me, of course. But of course, you're looking for confirmation all the time. You're looking for reassurance. Or you think you've had a good idea and you want to tell somebody. So you, there's a lot of learning early on. And one of the interesting things that happened to me on this learning curve, I was doing at one time a series of book signings in Waterstones. And I was booked in to do one on a Saturday morning in Emma Hampstead. And it was when I published my second work, The Deal. And I went in and I knew the staff quite well. I'd done several signings for them. And they all applauded me. And I couldn't understand what this was about. And I said to the manager, why are they applauding me? She said, well, you've completed your second book. And most authors don't do a second book. Very interesting. We could understand it's a learning curve all the way through. When you were bringing up your kids or when you were a child, were you into storytelling at that point? Can you look back and think my imagination was wild enough to be able to put this into words later on? Well, certainly, as far as my wife was concerned, I was quite good at telling stories, but that's, <laughs> we, won't, we won't go down that <laughs> On the training side, of course, you're always looking for an avenue to train. It's not quite as simple as you think. It's standing up there talking about high purchase law can be a bit difficult for the students. So you're often looking for other angles that enable you to get your point across. Why did you pick crime? Have you always been a fan of crime stories? I've always read extensively, and the, the, the great crime writers of my time. Uh, I just picked it up from that. I mean, obviously, early on, Agatha Christie in the pure crime writing, mm -hmm. but the more adventurous crime writer, Arthur Haley, uh, would be my great hero, and others similar to him in, in the modern day, Lee Child with, with the Jack Reacher stories. It's always extraordinarily, it's amazed me the talent of the writers. Uh, their ability to write decent books is just phenomenal. And if you write, read the books that aren't that well written, it brings it home. That's true. Tell us about your crime novels and your central character, DCI Sarah Rudd. A very uh, fast-track police officer. First appearing in my first novel, which was Megan's Game, which was set in Wales and London. And it's the story of a Welsh widow. She's lost her husband in the Iraq war. And a rich London financier who has a holiday home in Wales. And they meet and begin a romance. Um, and then he becomes the accused in a murder plot. 
and over and above being a police officer, she gets him uh, freed from this accusation by finding who the murderer really was. So that was the first one. And I try and use my own personal background of corporate finance in London to just give a, a spice to the stories. In the second one, the deal, this uh, corporate financier has to raise £6 million for this company. And the sister of the chief exec is stunningly gorgeous. And they fall in love. And she says, I'm not going to go to bed with you until you've raised £6 million for my brother. But in doing so, they then get themselves involved in a film fraud. And DCI Sarah Rudd comes along and saves the case again. I like the sound of Miss Sarah Rudd. She's a very tenacious police officer. Uh, the third one, Cholesterol. And there was a lot of debate over the title of that, possibly not the best title, but another crime and DCI Rudd to the rescue. There's always a romance somewhere. In fact, incidentally, when I wrote the, the second book, The Deal, I was doing book signings in Waterstones in Milton Keynes. And I went along one Saturday to do a book signing and there were queues outside Waterstones. And I thought, goodness, I made it. They're all coming to buy my book. And in fact, what it was, the uh, Fifty Shades of Grey, the E.L. E. James book, had just hit their lives. And all these people had been in the canteen, the works canteen the day before, and they all were queuing to buy E.L. James's book. <laughs> but it felt good for that moment, thinking <laughs> they're all here, they're here to see me. It did have an effect because we're all human. And I begin, you know, along with other authors, fiction authors, I thought, well, have I got to put more sex into my books? And certainly that manifested in cholesterol. And I think it's probably the least good book I wrote. And I went into reverse afterwards. I thought, no, 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 you haven't got the ability to write that. Stick to story writing. <laughs> you look at the books, the sex actually disappears and we stop at the bedroom door. And that seems to work a lot better. It's a lot more titillating. Who would you actually, um, have you had in mind of uh, an actor to play? DCI Sarah Rudd, when you were writing her, was was there anyone in, in mind? Well, there was, there still is, it's still being talked about, but it hasn't happened, of ma making Megan's Game into a film. And at that time, this was 10 years ago, we started that one, there were a number of current actresses. Um, Lily James was the popular one, who is, has had a very successful career, but there are many others, There's some really talented actors around at the moment. I've heard Natalie Rolls is actually free at the moment. The producer of Megan's Game is Paul Tucker, who produced some of the James Bond films. Uh, I'll phone him up and say, I've got a name for you. And he'll go, who? Natalie who? Uh, <laughs> but she has an element of Bond, a bit of a female Bond behind her character. Yes. Funny enough, Paul Tucker tells me that Roger Moore was his favourite Bond. He did two films with Roger Moore. He didn't get on very well with Sean Connery, apparently, but he did like Roger Moore. Uh, and uh, Roger Moore certainly liked the ladies. So I, I think you no deals need apply. I think you'd walk into the job. Paul Tucker, if you're listening. <laughs> so dialogue for me, being an actor, is you key in instantly to a character, even down to would she put a perfume on before she puts her clothes on or, you know, the detail in creating a character. When you invented DCI, Sarah Rudd, how did you come about with that character? What was your inspiration for her? Well, I needed a police officer in Megan's game and that, and that role developed into the deal. And 
DCI Sarah Rudd began to take shape. But in fact, I had a stroke of luck because at that time, I was chairman of the Crime Prevention Panel in Leighton Buzzard, and I knew some of the senior police officers quite well. And one of them read the deal and was kind enough to say he quite liked it. And I said, well, look, I don't know how a woman police officer thinks. Could you introduce me to one? And I heard no more. And about three months later, the phone rang and it was him. And he said, I'm going to give you a name, see what you think. And I went along to Kempston headquarters, which is the headquarters of Bedfordshire Police, and met this police officer. And she was very, very wary and very suspicious initially. But in fact, uh, she was married to a police dog handler. And the relationship, we were together four years and she became DCI Sarah Rudd. What a wonderful experience to have that intimacy with someone in so close to their work, like w with Jackie Moulton in the bill. She was such a powerhouse. She would walk around the corridors and you'd instantly know that was Jackie Moulton. She had an aura about her. And there was something in my character that I knew I wanted to take a little bit of Jackie and put into my Debbie McAllister story. Was there anything in meeting this person that, I mean, obviously the arc of your character comes from someone, but how did you continue to do her voice? How was her voice? She was a bit fearsome. Uh-huh. If I can tell you a story about her, I can't tell you her name because I don't have permission, but let's call her Billy. That wasn't her Let's name. Let's call her Billy Billy. We all call her Billy. She told me a wonderful story about before she was married, she and her friend, who was also a police officer, went to Spain on holiday. And late at night, they came out of a nightclub and turned the corner. And this Spaniard exposed himself to them. And her friend, so according to Billy, she, ran, she screamed and ran off. And I said to Billy, well, what did you do about it? She said, I beat the living day like that. <laughs> oh, my goodness. She was a fierce lady. Oh, she came. They had two police dogs at their home because obviously the husband was a handler. And she came one day and she got marks all over her arm where one of the dogs had been a bit frisky. And she saw life in the raw. As our relationship developed and she began to build trust in me, some of the stories she told me were just, you would have experienced exactly the same in your time with the bill. She, we used to meet every two weeks in a pub and I'd go back over what I'd written and she'd advise me and so on and so forth. And she told me this story that she'd been uh, to see her. The neighbours had reported that there was uh, concern about a child beating in one of the houses. And she went into this house and she said there was nothing wrong at all. She couldn't find anything except this child of about a year had got chocolate on its mouth and she looked and there were two of them and she left saying I can't find any and then it suddenly occurred to her she went back and the parents had used chocolate to cover up the bruises oh no when you begin to hear that now that never appeared in my books but sometimes when DCI Sarah Red was facing her domestic strife I, I could feel the background to it through what Billy taught me Without that extra detail, you wouldn't be able to carve that character out. So it's a, it's a process being a writer. Yes. Are you six books in? Six novels? Yes. Obviously, you've got time sorted because you're really astute with your time. You put the time away. What, what would be your biggest 
obstacle in your day apart from maybe having not having your wife's opinion? <laughs> well, no, we, we overcame that. And in fact, Judy became my biggest supporter. Uh-huh. Once I saw it from her point of view and realised I'd been a bit selfish, that sorted itself out. But equally, she's got her life to live. And she when you're writing, I don't know whether you, you experience the same with acting, but I mean, I'm in my study at the moment. Sometimes I'll start, you know, there's a lot of alcoholism amongst writers because many of them start around six or seven in the morning. So by about 12 o'clock, you've done six or seven hours, there's a limit. Yes. Sometimes my mind is so totally wrapped up in the character I've been working on that morning. Judy will come in and say, shall we go shopping? And I won't understand what she's saying. So we've had to work that one out, and we did work it out, obviously. That's really interesting you should say that, because there's obviously uh, the alcohol problem. You decided... I love this when I was reading it. I was thinking, I, I know so many people that have done the opposite to what you did. You stopped drinking at 60 to pursue your career in writing. There was an interesting story there. Like everybody else, I was never an alcoholic. But of course, at one time, I owned a squash club which had a bar, so drink was very available. Mm-hmm. But I knew myself I was drinking too much and that there would be a longer-term penalty. And on December the 22nd, when I was 60, I had to have quite a tooth extraction, and it was quite a deep one. And I had this South African dentist in Leighton Buzzard. And he said to me, he said, Tavi said, I'm a great dentist, but this was tricky, and I can't take any chances with you, so I'm putting you on the strongest antibiotic possible. You are not to drink for three days. And off he went, we all went off for Christmas. So I didn't drink for three days, which was the longest I'd gone for drinking for many years, in fact. And I suddenly thought, I added up all I'd drink over Christmas, and I never drank again. How brilliant is that? And it's interesting at dinner parties, for instance, those who drink heavily don't like it. I've had to be very, very sensitive to them. Around about 11 o'clock at night, when the third bottle of red wine is being served, they all say, you're giving, you're going to start drinking again. And the answer is I won't, because I don't know whether I could or not. I don't know whether I could have a drink of wine or a glass of wine and not go back to where I was. But I'm not prepared to take the risk. The upside's too great. You're much clearer in your thinking when you, you know, I, I can have a glass or two. Past that, I'll be dancing. And then you sort of realise I've forgotten so many moments of, of my life partaking in that i mean you've had you know great times but at the same time it's like if you're clear-headed and your imagination is clear so that is just going to help you with your writing and you've got to carry on writing i think you're a really good author with writing you're always brought to a you you get a good review or a few good reviews and this i opened from this lady in Tring. Dear Mr. Dura, I've just read your latest book and I must tell you my six-year-old son can write better than you. (laughs) I thought I should have written back and said, well, Mozart was composing concertos at five. What's holding him back? But I... I... (laughs) But you do do have to get thick-skinned and also, I mean, I've been privileged to know... I mean, everybody thinks writers are all successful. They're not. The key statistic in writing is that 95% of authors earn less than 5000 a year in royalties, and that puts it all into perspective. But the, if you go to the writers' conferences, 
the fellowship amongst the writers is fantastic. I remember one Saturday morning up in um, in the north somewhere, John Connolly gave a nine o'clock speech at how he'd overcome writer's block. And it was one of the most wonderful speeches I'd ever heard. And the whole audience was with him because every writer gets writer's block at some stage. And it's horrible. And that fellowship is, is, is actually very nice. What do you do when you have writer's block? Well, I've been very, very lucky. I've only had it twice and it wasn't that serious. But I've got one of my authors who I work with at the moment has got it. They're a lovely author and he can't get out of it. And there's no logic. It comes for a lot of writers around 40,000 words. There's no logic to it. But in time and again, I hear them say around about 40,000 words have got writer's block. But I like the way you said that if you've hit 40,000 words, you're halfway through. Absolutely right. And you seem to me that you are certainly a man that looks at life, his glass is half full, it's never half empty. I think you've got a really positive attitude. Oh, well, I'm just chuffed to have read your autobiography, which I was lying on the sofa last night and I got to the end. Oh, wow, it was such a nice read and so interesting. I love the way you flavoured each chapter with politically what was going on, setting the scene. Square Mile Tales came completely accidentally. I wrote an article about people I knew in Robert Maxwell, Ghislaine Maxwell and so on, Elizabeth Holmes. And a friend of mine, he's a very successful author and publisher, said, you ought to write this as an autobiography. And he said, you're not very interesting, but the background to the stories are. So I said, okay, well, thanks. <laughs> and that's what I did. I wrote the book, as you have very generously read, it was a very therapeutic experience, something I never expected. Oh. My memory is very good. I can actually remember back to the age of five with my ration coupons, getting my bar of chocolate at the local news agent. I can remember, every, I couldn't believe it, the detail with which I could remember everything. The response has been very, very different to what I expected. I didn't realise that people have enjoyed reading about the city and my side of the city, the way it worked. The biggest thing about London is its impersonality. There is no accountability. At the front of my autobiography, I quote Reggie Cray. We talked about being in London, and he captured it perfectly. I mean, I met some very wonderful people, and I met some seriously nasty people. And things happen in London. You cannot be in London without things happening. Just going there, being there, tube trains, restaurants, the lot. To some extent, it's a bit technical, but I actually have a clean record with the Finance Conduct Authority. You have to be regulated to work in corporate finance. And you have the kitchen sink thrown at you, and regulation is everything these days, it's everything in life, but it's certainly everything in the city. And when on the day I retired, I had a clean record with the FCA, and I took some pride out of that because it, it, it had been very, very difficult. There's so many stories in your book. I love the way you've spoken about them there's there's one with your squash club that's right i mean this is just the sort of the silly things that happened but we we took over the squash club and it it was a grade two building in Leyden buzzard next to where we bought our house i played squash there and i was a very keen squash player not a particularly good one but i tried my best one day the chance came up to take the lease and i took it and we were quite entrepreneurial and uh, we decided to organise a ladies' world championship. And this lady, Sue Devoy, 
had come from nowhere. Nobody knew her. And suddenly she became world champion. And I managed to get nine of the 10 top world women's players. So we had this champion. We did fashion shows with everything. It's fantastic. And at the end of the tournament, and Sue Boy was in a class of her own. She was totally professional. And some of the other girls were interested in the male members of my club as playing squash. So it was a fairly eventful tournament. <laughs> at the end, I gave her a check for 500 pounds for winning the tournament. And a, a little bit later, I was working in London. Somebody mentioned that we got a New Zealand 10 pin. And I went up this New Zealand 10 and said, I said, hi, I'm Tony Drury, the chairman. And she was totally unimpressed by this. So I said, my brother, you're from New Zealand. She wasn't very impressed by that either. <laughs> so I said, um, do you know Sue DeVoy? Sue DeVoy. Sue DeVoy is my mentor, the greatest New Zealand woman of all time. She inspires me. She's inspired me across the globe. So I sent Sue DeVoy what's hoping, and she looked at me, and she was completely perplexed by this. And I said, well, I was giving her a check for £500 at the time. And she said, yes. She said, I think I'd want to check for £500 before bugging you. <laughs> you bring to life a number of memorable encounters you had in the city throughout your finance career, including one with fraudster Elizabeth Holmes. Well, Elizabeth Holmes, of course, was an extraordinary story because I only ever knew her for 20 minutes. We were specialists in the company I built up in London in providing finance for smaller companies. And I was told that this woman was coming in, but I was late for the meeting. My other staff were dealing with it, but I went into the boardroom. And the moment she saw me, she'd obviously been briefed on who made the decisions, which at that time I did. And she stopped. And she stood up and apparently she repeated all she'd said for my benefit. And she had got this blood testing kit, which she subsequently raised billions and billions of dollars in America. She was over in London trying to raise money. She was 26, I think, when I met her. She then said, we're off to another meeting. She just left the meeting. And as she was leaving, she came up to me and she squeezed my hand. And she said, Mr. Drury, together you and I can conquer the world. <laughs> There's a line. <laughs> there you go. The judge in America has just turned down her appeal. She's got, I think, a 13-year prison sentence to serve for fraud. And she tried to say, well, I can't go to prison. I've got two children. And apparently the judge has turned that down. She has her time. She had her time. And, of course, as I say, she was only 20 minutes in our boardroom. The very fact we're talking about it emphasises the impact she made. Your books are released through your publishing house, City Fiction, where one of your authors is Candy Denman, who wrote many episodes of The Bill, including one of my best McAllister episodes called Mexican Standoff. How did you meet Candy? A publishing company called Crime Scene Books went bust, and I was going to buy it. But there were certain reasons not to buy it. But I took on all the authors, one of whom was Candy Denman. She is just lovely. Now, she sadly, from my point of view, utterly reasonably, has gone to another publisher and is doing extremely well. But we've remained strange. She wrote a novella for me. And in fact, and forgive the lack of modesty, but she actually did a review of um, Square Martels this week on, on Amazon. And I fell over when I read it because... 
nobody, I'm, I'm very used to reading reviews and I've had lots of bad reviews and also good reviews from people who can't say bad about anybody. But the middle range reviews are so important. And I, I would say it's the best review I've ever had. And that was Candy. It came completely out of the blue. I, I looked at Amazon and I thought, well, who's put this review up? And it was Candy. Oh, wonderful. How many stars did she give you? That would be immodest. <laughs> That's a nice little key in there from the bill time because, you know, obviously we don't get to meet all the writers. We're all busy doing what we're doing. So it's... Uh, that's a shame. That would be a pleasure if you had more time, which is why a film and, and those events are, are much more drawn out and you have the time to sit and discuss and that's all part of the process. She was very hurt when her contract was terminated. She wrote a lot of episodes for the bill, but she, she reinvented herself and she's doing extremely well at the moment. She's got a huge following. That's fantastic. And we all have to reinvent ourselves at so many times, as did you. You came through the finance, political, into writing. And it must be a, a lovely way to spend your days when you're not with your grandson, Henry. Um, he's just had a trial for Watford, would you believe? He's a goalkeeper. Wow. Henry's just unbelievable. I mean, they're all grandpas. But... All grandpas left their grandsons, especially. And I love the, over COVID, you said that the, uh, you know, the Zoom calls obviously got tedious after a while for all of us. And how you started to write to him and you sent a quiz in the form of Christmas to keep him occupied. And it didn't arrive because of the postal strike. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have to do these quizzes for him, I. I send him the quits, the answers, and then the envelope for ten pounds. And somehow he always seems to do the quiz and get the ten pounds. I can't work. Quite work. <laughs> what I find interesting with Henry, and as a writer, the hardest thing for me personally, obviously I'm getting older, but also trying to understand the world. Mm. I mean, I look out now the window and I see all the young people walking up and down, trying to understand their world and the pressures on them and. I find with Henry, yes, he can be a 10-year-old and he can be naughty, but also I'll suddenly have a discussion with him where he explains his life to me. So I find he keeps my feet on the ground. That was my question. Like, do you ever stop learning as an author? And in a sense, you've just answered that because, no, you don't, you, you know, the world is ever-changing and, and people's beliefs are so varied and you have to find your way within that. So what do you think will be your next book? Would it be a fiction or what do you have in your brain? I'm not going to write any more fiction. I don't think I could anymore. I have been approached to do a follow-up Square Mile Tales Part 2. Ah. And I had a meeting about it this week. I'm not sure yet. I was determined the book wouldn't insult anybody. And with the odd exception, I seem to have achieved that. But a friend of mine approached me this week and it came from a London source. They're saying, why don't you tell the stories that you haven't told? And there are some stories there, I can tell you. So Square Mile Tales Part 2 is being talked about at the moment where I tell the real stories. There are some very evil people in the city, I can tell you. Your story will inspire many of our listeners who love crime dramas and might not yet have put pen to paper themselves. What would your best piece of advice be for anyone out there who might like to follow in your footsteps and write a novel? I'd like them to allow me to tell them the story about the, the uh, farmer from Chesham. At one time, Milton Keynes Library 
employed me to go along on a Saturday morning and talk to groups who were book writing. And there, there were some professionals there as well, but they liked my style, slightly irreligious, a bit naughty. And I, I went a number of years, and so they were obviously pleased with me. One day, I'd finished my talk, and this woman came up, and she said, would you read my manuscript? So I said, of course I will. And I took it away. It was dreadful, absolutely dreadful. She was only about 25. She was a farmer from Chechnya, and it was diabolical. So I wrote to her, and I said, probably worth looking at this and this, but don't give up and keep going. And by the way, rewrite the bit in the barn, because I don't think that was going to happen. And I never thought any more about it. And I got a letter from her about a year, 18 months later. And she said, Dear Mr. Troy, your letter was the turning point in my career. And I've just signed with a major publisher. Oh, how lovely is that? I took enormous pride out of that because you just do not know. Everybody is capable of scaling the heights. Of course, like everything else in life, like dieting, giving up drink, there's always downsides. But there will be a beacon of light somewhere. Just you've got to keep working. You've got to find it. You would know better than I. I I've never acted. But I can only imagine it must be absolutely draining at times. And you dream of when you look at the program and you think, okay, yeah, I did that okay. Sometimes. <laughs> An artist's life. Yeah, you have to be brave. Tony, let's talk about the future of City Fiction. First of all, thank you so much for sponsoring the Bill podcast. Well, perhaps it's me who should thank you because you came at me like an extra set. I hadn't really understood the work you do. I'm very familiar with it now. It's very modern. It's very well thought through. The quality of the people involved, the quality of the material. And we're just very, very pleased to be a small part of it. Oh, thank you so much. What does this mean now for city fiction? Well, I think all publishers look for different areas of travel. You tend to rely on your books that are selling, but you're always looking for the new direction of travel. And one thing I've picked up, particularly from Oliver, is the innovation that podcasting actually represents. And we've come in a bit late, perhaps, but we're climbing on board with excitement because we want to be seen as a modern publishing company. We're quite efficient. We, we use our catch very sensibly. Uh, and our, we have five authors who are all happy with us. At the same time, expanding the name of City Fiction and seeing if we can seek some new authors to come in. You can always attract authors. There's a lot of skullduggery out in publishing and people take money off authors and say, we'll publish a book and nothing much happens. We're not in that category at all. We will seek out authors of merit to see if we can expand our bibliography. So if there's any budding authors out there, a little bit like you, you didn't start off as an author, Tony. You created this whole new journey going forward for yourself. So there's there's other people listening that just might have that little seed of, why can't I do this? You know, there's a positive spin on all these stories. So perhaps they could try and contact you, be in touch and forward anything that they have written is would that be a good way to very much so i mean the, the the message i'd want to get across to these people immediately is that i'm not going to take any money off them we've talked privately about my view that there are far too many people milking the publishing world by creating the holy grail of being published but in fact taking money without offering anything back to the 
person, there's a degree of satisfaction in holding a book, but it doesn't last very long when nobody takes any interest in it. So I would want, first of all, to see if I'm capable of creating a relationship with the author, if they trust me, if they're willing to work with me, and we can take it from there. But it's not going to be easy. I mean, for every every 10 who try, only one will get through. Not because I want to hinder them, because the process is so wearing. But those who do get through it can be very rewarding. Is it like a mentoring business relationship in a sense that you would help them along their way if you see, like like this story with the farmer, in the end it was you that paved the way. So for any of these budding authors, be in contact with city fiction. The farmer's story was relevant to the extent that it was purely by chance that I chose to write to her and say, this, you know, this, in fact, it's a very bad book, but I chose to phrase my letter in a different way and she took it as encouragement. I mean, normally it wouldn't work that way because I didn't hear from her for a year or so. But I, I just put that story in my book. So I was, I was so pleased for her. Aww. The first part would be to say, is there music here? Or are we making music together? Once we've got over the I want to be published bit. And then are we going to work well together? And then will you trust me? And until the person feels they can genuinely say, yes, I trust this bloke, then we can go forward. But generally, publishers don't know, particularly on fiction, whether a book will sell. If you, I mean, the biggest selling books at Christmas are recipe books. So you can target certain sectors. But fiction, you just don't know. And one thing I often say to new authors is look at the best-selling list today and then look at the best-selling list a year ago and see if any of their names are the same, because there won't be. So many. And so many cookbooks. I've actually got a cookbook inside of me, I think. (laughs) But at the end of the day, it's trust and belief in people. And you only need that one person. I think Oliver and I were talking about this the other day. You just need that one person. And if you've got that communication and, and that trust, then normally things grow. So you are the man to contact if anyone's out there thinking of publishing their fiction book. Well, we'll always treat people with respect. And also we'll say no. If it's no, we will say no and not waste their time. The usual event that happens is that they've got a manuscript and they want you to read it. Some people are at an earlier stage. And in that instance, I will encourage them to write a synopsis of the book We'll battle that around until we've got something fairly complete, and then they can start writing the chapters. But I also want to do it in a way that appeals to the, the individual. Everybody has a different metabolism. So every situation is different. I don't, you can, I mean, the big publishers will have that on the website and they have a submission policy. And if you don't follow the policy, they won't have anything to do with you. But we're a small firm and we're looking for the crown jewels, the author who's a little bit special and can make a mark oh this is so lovely the small boutique publishing world of city fiction thank you so much for jumping on board getting to get very excited we're very grateful we're very very pleased to be part of this oh it's been so lovely talking to you you can buy your books through amazon is that correct yes go to amazon books Amazon Books. Only Drury, Flash of Lightning, I appear, and you can buy any book you want. Fantastic. You also read the reviews as well. 
good, bad, and ugly. They're all there. But <laughs> you have no control over reviewing, of course. I once asked my sister, who I adore, to write a review of one of my books. And she wrote, I'm giving this book two stars and I can't recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much, sis. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to get a Christmas card this year. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Our huge thanks to Tony for being such a lovely guest and for his amazing support of The Bill Podcast. If you are a budding writer and you have an idea for a fiction book or perhaps you've already written something and would like feedback, then why not contact Tony via his website, cityfiction.co.uk or you can find him on Twitter at Mr. Tony Drury. Tony's memoir, Square Mile Tales, is available on paperback or ebook from Amazon. Next time on The Bill Podcast, join me as I begin a three part interview with my old Sunhill sparring partner, Roddy James. If you can't wait until next month, you can unlock the entire trilogy now and over 90 hours of exclusive content at patreon.com forward slash the bill podcast. I'll pass you over now to lovely Andrew McIntosh to read our closing credits and I'll see you all next time. Take care and bye for now. Hello, this is Andrew McIntosh and you have been listening to the bill podcast brought to you in association with georgefairbrother.com shop.saturdaymorningpress.co.uk and cityfiction.co.uk The Bill Podcast is produced by Oliver Crocker co-produced by Ben Adams Glenn Allen, Rob Cook Sarah Kuiper, Calvin Millward Maz Mirabilis Alex Mockler and Simon Wolfe Executive produced by Isabel Allen, Ben Ashmore Simon Banstead, Alana Dewar Andrew Dyack, Tony Drury, Paul Dunn, Dan Evans, George Fairbrother, Luke Hegarty, Alan Hunting, Edward Kellett, James Ledane, Lucy McNeil, Gary Moncur, Claire Norbury, Laura Pinifay, Michael Seeley, Tom Sherrington, Angel Stannard, Patrick Stratford, Michael Weil, and Sarah Went. The theme music is composed by Matthew Annis. Natalie and I have been back in the studio recording Series 2 of Letter from Helvetica, which will be released on all good podcasting platforms later this year. If you'd like to hear your name on the closing credits of the next eight episodes of our Top 40 Fiction podcast, you can support us on coffee.com forward slash letter from Helvetica.